Hi, it's Brad Leach here. I'm a speaker for the upcoming Biosuticals Clinical Mastery Masterclass held on the 9th of February, where I'll be sharing the latest advancements, protocols, and evidence-based interventions for increased intestinal permeability. So if you'd like some tools to improve your confidence in the management of intestinal permeability in your clinical practice, find out more by visiting biosuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph, a Melbourne-based chiropractor and naturopath. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Jen Keating. Jen Keating is a highly skilled and PhD-awarded chiropractor and researcher with a special interest in paediatric care. Her particular focus is the neurological development of the child. Dr. Jen runs educational courses in paediatric neurological development and delivers diplomate-level accredited courses worldwide to help educate practitioners about children and neurological development. Jen has a keen interest in the facilitation of shared care and the advancement of paediatric care to assist in proper neurological advancement of the paediatric patient. It's a real pleasure to have you joining us today, Jen. Thanks, Damien. Pleasure to be here. Jen, um, I'd love to start by asking you some questions, please, about how and why you became so interested in this field. How did you get here? Oh, a long story. I've been in practice 35 years and uh, really the beginning of it was I had a head injury from diving into a pool when I was 12 and I hit my head on the bottom and uh, suffered a concussion, not that it was diagnosed that way. And uh, really my life, I wasn't well, I wasn't, I had shocking migraines and I got help with a chiropractor. And from that, I got really interested what's going on here. So I worked there part-time as a high school student and then studied chiropractic. But I've always been fascinated about, you know, child development and how do we support healthy development for families and communities. And that's what drives me. Yeah, I think that's such a common thing within our fields of care, you know, whether it be naturopathy, which, you know, I'm a naturopath and a nutritionist, oh. and then also as a chiropractor, it all came from our own experience, didn't it? You know, a lot of people experienced it because we, you know, kind of, for, I don't know, for whatever reason, we all kind of were thrusted into a particular model of care as children growing up. And then, you know, as we maybe find a different path or see a different avenue, we can often take that. Um, and I found that too within chiropractic. You know, when I was experienced in chiropractic, I thought, oh, maybe I want to be a chiropractor. Um, but then when you see people like yourself and other, you know, great chiropractors doing great things, I then became interested in doing it. But even from a naturopathic perspective, before I was a chiropractor, looking in at what you were doing and what other chiropractors were doing, I was I was blown away. So these days we see issues with kids that, we've never seen before you know we we see autism we see ADD we're seeing Asperger's we're seeing all kinds of neurological issues what do you think's going on at the moment why is this happening right now yeah well there's there's been a rapid increase and you know some people say is it just down to improved you know diagnostic criteria because we need you know we know that early intervention for some of these neurodevelopmental or all neurodevelopmental disorders is really important so there is a push to diagnose earlier but I just uh, the the improved 
improvement in diagnosis doesn't cover it. And, you know, there's an argument to say is toxicity, you know, and chemical toxicity um, in our environment has increased and children are more susceptible because of their rapidly growing brain and nervous system and their immature, you know, detoxification organs so that they're more susceptible. And there is an argument to say with the change in our food and the change in our environment and, you know, medications, um, you know, for children have increased. And so there's an argument to say that that could be uh, a component of how, you know, development is changing. But the other thing, of course, Damien, that we're seeing is, um, and particularly, you know, with changes to a lot of online stuff over the last couple of years, we're seeing that real change in posture with children, that head forward posture and that internal rotation in the shoulders and that sort of forward into the thoracic spine. And that's significant for a couple of reasons. It's not only about, you know, posture, but it's about that affects airway. You know, as the head comes forward and the jaw sort of comes down, the tongue sits lower in the mouth, we don't get that good lip seal, good muscle use for that breathe, suck, swallow cycle. And that affects oxygenation, as does the lack of rib cage movement as the thoracic spine comes forward and the shoulders, you know, internally rotate. We decrease the ability of the lungs to take a good deep breath in. And that oxygenation is really important, you know, for all of us, but particularly for kids because their brain is, as I said, still developing. So when we get that change in the airway, the change in the posture, the increase in tension in the uh, in the neck with that head forward posture, that has dramatic impacts on, you know, children's growth and development and their health and their well-being. If we're not breathing well, swallowing well, chewing food well and using all those muscles well, then nutrition and gut are impacted, you know, the nutrition to the system, but also the way the gut functions is impacted because of that sort of mechanical change with what's going on in the airway. We see so many kids that really struggle with textures of foods. You know, they just want those blander foods, but they want that sort of easy to chew texture. And, you know, don't get me started on the squeegee packs that parents squeeze, (laughs) you know, pre uh, Mm. Mashed up food into, or, you know, pureed food into kids' mouths. We won't go there, but, uh, Mm. you know, that whole movement of the mouth and the saliva and the swallowing, they're really important to stimulate all those branchial arch nerves into the brainstem and, you know, for development. I think, you know, kids are really babies, particularly in young children. They're very brainstem and diencephalon sort of driven creatures. We don't have a highly developed upper cortex yet, you know, when we're born, and that happens over those you know, coming years. And I think it's really incredibly important that we get good movement and good extension tone into there to help um, fire and wire the brain. This is so great, Jen. I tell you, but I, I have to tell you, and like so many other people who are into food right now, people are going to go, what do you mean squeegee packs? What's wrong with squeegee packs? So I'm going to take you back there because I know you said I don't want to get into it, but I do want to get into it. Oh, okay, great. Oh, I'm happy to go there. <laughs> are they really that bad? Is What's the story there? Well, I think they are, you know, because texture is really important when, you know, babies move from hopefully breastfeeding or formula feeding. If breastfeeding, you know, let's be open-minded about things people choose. But, you know, we know that people there's not enough support for, you know, for women to breastfeed in a lot of quarters. And, um, you know, if we can get that breathe, suck, swallow and get feeding happening well, then that's an important early start. But as we move on to, you know, solid foods, the whole thing about child development is, you know, I think of it as scaffolding. They might start on a bit of puree stuff and they might have a bit of experience of sucking on fruit or veggies themselves and getting into that whole experience of it. 
But over time, we should be able to increase the texture so that they can get those muscles working. The mm. oral, you know, function is really important. And if we're on squeegee, sort of really highly pureed foods all the time, um, children don't get that sensory experience of their hands and their mouth and the face and the mess, but they're also <laughs> not getting to use those muscles as they should bit by bit. And the muscles that we use to manage food uh, are the same muscles that we use for talking. So we're mm. seeing lots of speech and language delays. And although that's not my prime area, of course, as a chiropractor, my PhD is in early childhood development. And I'm mm -hmm. particularly interested in how do we work in an interdisciplinary collaborative way because none of us have all the answers. It takes right. a team approach, even for typically developing children for healthcare, but particularly for children that have higher needs. So I'm particularly interested in that speech and language development and how do we get that whole breathing, you know, coordination going for, for language. And that comes from chewing your food as well. This is so profound that a simple little thing, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to make this too basic because it's not basic, it's complicated, it's multi-leveled, it's multi-levels of the scaffolding, as you would say, Jen. But it seems that um, much of the neurological development of the paediatric patient falls apart or falls away in those early months, you know, when people are trying to determine how do I breastfeed, you know, can I breastfeed, is there a mid-suck, am I getting, you know, the nipple to the back of the throat, is the baby gulping air, is there reflux, you know, am I using medication, then we move on to, you know, food at four months now, you know, the recommendation for children to be oh. um, getting solids at four months, I don't know where that came from. Um, but well, the World Health Organisation still says exclusive breast or formula feeding till six months. And that's really reassuring, yeah. Damien, for yeah. patients to hear because there is that little bit of a push to go early, go early, but the gut's immature, yeah. the, you know, the system no to handle that's immature and there's, there's really not a need for it. So. Well, yeah, I, I, we could go on for years or days at least um, trying to find out why that is the recommendation. But I do think that there's this speed of things that happens these days, Jen, that um, there's an urgency about getting things done. Everything's really, really quick. So it's quick, uh -huh. eat your meal, quick, cook it up, quick, we've got to get to here, quick, get uh -huh. this done. You know, back in my day, Jen... You know, maybe I'm sounding old when I say things like that, but you know, the most digital thing that we ever had was Donkey Kong Junior. And, um, and you know, you'd play that on your little Nintendo, you'd get bored of that because you got sick of jumping over barrels. But these days, um, people or kids are playing games for a long period of time. I used to read a lot, and I don't recall my neck posture being better or worse than kids that are on games or screens all the time. What's the difference between reading a book and playing a game? Uh, <laughs> you know, my PhD thesis was nearly going to be on um, the parental rationale for early screen time in very young children, but I changed that over and I'll talk about what it was in a minute. But um, I've been really concerned about the shift that I've seen to children, really young children, two, three, four, five months old even, being given, you know, phones and iPads to entertain them. And we could go, so there's the postural component to that and you see that every day and we all see that as kids kind of slump right forward. And we talked about that, that increase in tension in the neck and the, and the 
the difficulty with the breathing. But the other component of that is the eye movements that we use when we're looking at a small screen. So mm. if we think about, um, you know, when we're changing focal distance in a normal sort of environment and we're, you know, maybe looking at a book, we might, you know, change that focal distance. But what happens when we're looking at a small screen, and I'm not talking so much about TV, but I'm talking about sort of screens closer than that, um, we use circadic eye movements. Circade movements of the eyes are those short, sharp movements, and they're driven by an area in the frontal prefrontal cortex. Um, in uh, we're going to the area, they're a frontal-driven um, eye movement, and they're short and sharp movements. And there's some really interesting. Um, research coming out about that hyperplasticity of the um, frontal-driven circadic movements as compared to the slower pursuit movements, which come from the parietal area, and they drive those slower, longer movements of the eyes. So I think there's something interesting that happens in that screen refresh rate with games and all kids you know, TV now, you know, they looked at um, early TV for kids and that was shot in one long scene. There wasn't that rapid screen refresh changing rate. And so there is some arguments about are we training short attention spans and a lot of stimulation needed to hold attention. And that Mm. does worry me with what I'm, you know, seeing with kids today as well. So I think there's that sort of product of the visual type of um, activity that we're doing when we're on screens a lot. But there's also that whole thing of self-regulation. You know, we used to talk about executive function with kids or, or adults as well, you know, um, a bit like air traffic control, you know, holding ideas and what's incoming and where do I put that piece of information and how do I plan for something and how do I pay attention? You know, they're all the sort of prefrontal cortex executive functions, but really now we think of it as self-regulation. How do I stay calm and present uh, and be able to, you know, soothe and settle myself so that I can pay attention to what I need to pay attention to or think through an idea or plan an activity or hold a goal in mind? And, of course, when we think of self-regulation, there's all the things that get in the way of that. Um, things like um, from the biological domain of, you know, uncomfortability in the body, um, muscle tension, uh, inability to kind of sit still. And then there's, um, you know, oversensory stimulation for sights and sounds. And all of that richness of sensory information, there's all of the emotional feelings when children are upset about something, if they're hungry, if they're feeling uncomfortable, if their gut's, you know, sending that sort of interoceptive, you know, discomfort. That's all a barrage of sensory information that comes into the thalamus and up into the cortex. And it's got to be dealt with, you know, by the brain and, you know, to choose what we pay attention to. And you can picture that five-year-old, you know, sitting on the mat in class and there's all of the kind of kid next to him wriggling and somebody's rattling paper and the boy's hungry and the teacher's coming in. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot going on, all the stuff flapping around in the classroom. Uh, And that's a lot for a child to try and contain and concentrate on instructions from the teacher and just learn and put their ideas together. And because that brain is immature, sure, you know, young children don't have good self-regulatory capacity. It's it's really about co-regulation. 
you know, when we're born, um, our our cortex, as I said, is so immature that we need a significant caregiver to help us calm and regulate and feed and warm and comfort. And over time, um, that transitions over into children being able to take more of those, you know, care activities on themselves. And there is an argument to say that the better that the mother or caregiver um, provides that co-regulation, the better the child can learn to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're seeing, you know, an epidemic of um, dysregulated children, you know, that don't have that ability to kind of settle and calm and soothe themselves. And I think, you know, screen time is used to come back to the screen time part of it. Screen time is used to calm a child, but it actually doesn't calm a child. It quietens a child for now. It occupies them. And there's all that sort of overstimulation of the dopamine reward pathways. You know, kids get quite addicted, if I can use that terminology, to their games or, you know, to what they want to play and the tantrums and frustration that comes from that I see every day in practice in different ways. And I think as, you know, as society, as parents, as, um, you know, therapists, as practitioners, it is our job to support families to how to to help their children in their regulation capacities, their self-regulatory capacities, and build it for them over time. This is so good, Jen, and I'm glad you brought up the uh, the bit about the um, the addiction component. And it's fair to use that because you know, we will be uh, interviewing Dr. Wayne Warburton. I'm not sure if you've met Wayne. Oh, before. I know Wayne well. Yeah. I had him speak yeah. at one of our conferences a few years ago. His work yeah. is quite outstanding, and I've shared that with a lot of our families in our practice. And yeah. it really does help them to understand what's going on there. Wayne's fabulous. Yeah, he is fantastic. I interviewed him on the Wellness Guys many years ago, and and I. Saw him in New Zealand at the NZCC um, oh. uh, event that they were holding, and he, he the research he uh, presented was just mind blowing. And I can't wait to share that with everybody listening to this. But I think it is really important, and to think about the ways in which we used to self regulate. It would be, you know, if I was roughing up my brother, or I was just getting a little bit besnickety or narky, Mum would say, "Go outside, you know, throw the ball at a cricket stump, or go climb a tree, or." You know, teaching me other activities that are outside of um, you know, blue light stimulation because we didn't really have, yeah. you, you, you didn't really watch tele- television back then, um, and you weren't looking at screens because there's no mobile phones, and there's only so long you can look at um, a phone with a dial on it, isn't there? You know, like yeah, a round dial, yeah, you can only exactly play right. patterns. You know, so being able to go outside um, or ride your bike um, by yourself, not having to have a conversation with other people, kids these days feel like they've got to be surrounded by people. So giving people that time, giving kids time to just down tools, I think is a really important thing. What else? What else could they be doing? Well, I think, you know, that movement thing and that outside, you know, we know the calming, you know, uh, the Japanese have the whole thing of forest bathing and we know that outside activities, you know, are really important for kids to just get their body moving. You know, I often think about we spend a lot of time in flexed forward postures, whether we're on Mm. screens, whether it's schoolwork. You know, I see, as you know, Dame, I work with, you know, babies right from, I have a lot of referrals from maternal and child health nurses and paediatricians and GPs, you know, for babies with, say, asymmetrical patterns or tension in the system or inability to turn their head, you know, one way. And they're really important because if we don't have that symmetry in the system and maybe it comes from the way we give birth these days and the, the move towards sort of 
um, medical intervention in birth. Um, and there's a time and a place for that, but where the percentages of, you know, epidurals and seizures are way higher than, you know, what yeah. would be sort of normally expected in our society. But um, when we have children that have difficulty with, you know, extension tone, you know, even that baby lying on their tummy and lifting their head up, because we put babies on their back to sleep since the 1992 American Pediatric Association Back to Sleep campaign, yes. babies sleep on their back and a lot of babies don't like tummy time and parents get nervous of tummy time with young babies but it's critically important that babies get lots of episodes it doesn't have to be long time lots of episodes of tummy time to start to lift that head and get that extension tone through the neck that's what fires midline cerebellar pathways and that's what starts to develop that postural tone that comes in over those next months and months as the baby learns to crawl and sit up and then to walk. <clears throat> and so that extension tone is really important right from very young babies. But kids as well, you know, two-year-olds, four-year-olds, six-year-olds, 10-year-olds, that whole how do we train that extension tone? And we do a lot of Superman activities over an exercise ball or aeroplane mm. activities or, you know, even just uh, as they get older, you know, exercises where they get their shoulders back and lift their chest up. So we can really work on that extension tone, partly to counteract, you know, just the physical counteraction of deflection that we all kind of sit in. And this applies to adults as well, of course, um, but also to really stimulate those brain pathways. That movement into extension is such an important thing for kids and adults as well, as I said. And then other things like concentrating on breathing, you know, kids do a lot of um, shallow breathing and mouth breathing, but to really help children with nose breathing um, and rib cage movement and getting that diaphragm moving, that has really powerful regulatory impact on the nervous system, you know, because of that, um, the breath in to breath out, the sympathetic to parasympathetic tone, and also that physical stimulation of the gut, you know, for the diaphragm to move down and really work those abdominal organs, um, that really helps with digestion and firing of, you know, parasympathetic tone for rest, digest, and, you know, rebuild build and recover. So mm. extension tone is really critical in any sort of way and that can be done really simply right from birth. But then, as I said, breathing and, of course, nutrition as we talked a little bit about the kind of texture and the structure of food and chewing, but, of course, what the nutritional capacity of our food is. As you said, that fastness, quick meals, hurry up, you know, we, that's that chewing and that enjoying of food and the social aspect of food that brings that calming to be able to digest our food. You know, we see a lot of kids that don't sleep well. They don't get to bed early enough. They miss their tired point. Then they're firing their sympathetic nervous system again. And kids say, I'm not tired. I lie awake. I need to stay up later. No, they actually need to go to bed earlier to catch that tired point. You know, we've got yeah. that whole whole families and whole communities of push, push, drive, drive and stress. You know, parents really kind of getting frustrated and stressed with kids and coming down really hard on kids and then kids not feeling calm and safe and comfortable so then they can't relax as well. We don't digest our food as well. We don't sleep and that's how we're breeding an epidemic of, you know, developmental challenges and, and ill health in people. And, you know, I don't think it's rocket science if we can all work together, different practitioners all work together to be able to support healthy, you know, development in, in children. And, of course, gut functions are really important important part of that. 
Um, yeah. it, it's all very well to, you know, think if we think of the vagal, you know, concomitants from the brainstem uh, affecting the vagus, you know, Stephen Paul just work about the um, myelinated vagus and, the, you know, how that helps calm and regulate. Um, they're really, it's really important information for us to understand, to support children. You know, it's no point trying to intervene when we have, you know, um, say, depressed teenagers, you know, we've seen, you know, an epidemic of stress in teenagers and, you know, mental health challenges. And, you know, it's not that it's not important to intervene, then it is, but we can set up a robustness earlier as a society if we do work together to help, you know, prevent a lot of it and help support a lot of the development that, that you know, encourages children to know how to calm and settle and soothe themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think it's, I think it's critical. I think we could be all doing a better job for that for our kids. I kids are born you. so, you know, developmentally early than any other mammal. You know, our brain is, it undergoes secondary altriciality um, after we're born, that secondary, you know, growth. And it means that we have a wonderful opportunity to get things right. And it don't have, it's not about perfect. You know, there's also a lot of parents that really are trying to get it perfect and in trying to do that, they're putting themselves under so much stress and they've made child rearing a higher cortical event rather than a right brain connecting to your feelings, emotional connection. And so that that sort of right brain to right brain of the parent to the child to be present um, is really important part of development. And because there's all these apps and rules about how you raise a child, it's really become an intellectual event. And I think that does get in the way of It's um, become a little bit too turn. cerebral. Yeah, too yeah, cerebral, exactly too many spreadsheets. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. There's a couple of things that you mentioned earlier on. One was um, back to sleep. Um, and we're going back to that 1992 piece um, mm. in, in America, which we tend to adopt everything the Americans say and then we go, oh, my gosh, we're becoming more like America every day. That's because we do what Americans do. So not that that's a bad thing and that can lead research and understanding and inquiry, but the back-to-sleep thing, though it's, you know, obviously uh, was done for a particular reason. Mm. When I put my head backwards, Jen, and tell me if it's just me, uh, when I put my head backwards, my mouth automatically opens and it feels to me like it's easier to breathe through my mouth. And I wonder whether or not there's something there that because children are spending so much time on their back, even when they're asleep or when they're awake, it draws the mouth open so that they become mouth breathers. Um, and, and, uh, and I wonder whether or not that's got something to do with tongue position and then breathing um, and how that might affect neurodevelopment, um, the lack of extensive tone, which you talk about obviously affecting posture, um, the inability to go outside and hang out or to, you know, perform tasks that would engage proper movement of the body and coordination and catching a ball mm. and kicking a ball and all those sorts, all of those sorts of things. Is this affecting neurodevelopment in children? Is this what we're saying? All of these things together? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is, Damien. I'm not sure that a child sleeping on their back, I'm not sure that that drives the mouth open. I know it does, okay. you know, in adults if you put it into extension. But with kids, I'm not sure. But what I will tell you is, you know, the back to sleep, we've seen such an increase in plagiocephaly with children, you know, that flat on one side of the head. Because oftentimes children from birth, they can have an asymmetry due to the torque and the twist and the way they're born, particularly forceps and von Tuss extraction, but even in, you know, 
you know, normal birth and Caesar birth as well. I see, because I see a lot of newborn babies, and of course, I, I want to let you know, Damien, you know this, but I want to let people know yeah. we don't do, I don't do spinal manipulation, you know, like a high velocity yes. um, adjustment in young babies. There's many, Same. many ways yeah. that chiropractors and osteopaths work with young babies that don't involve what people might be thinking of as that rack and crunch or whatever people want to call it, you know. It's a very finessed unwinding of tension. Um, babies aren't little segmental kind of units. They're a, they're a whole body posture that we unwind. But so if children have an asymmetry, a head-turning preference or a torque in their system, and then they sleep on their back, because all back sleepers don't get flat heads and play you carefully. That's but true. Babies that are susceptible do because heads are soft and they're heavy and they lie in that one position. That's how they get a flat head. And there's an association, not causation necessarily, but an association between the flat head, the plagiocephaly, and an increase in ear infections, um, a change in muscle development, delayed motor development, um, and also delayed cognitive development. And this research, Miller and Claren did this research back in 2010, and Speltz and Colette have done a time one, two, three from um, six months, 12 months, 18 months, up to three years studies on tracking children um, that have had, you know, that have plagiocephaly and what happens with their development. And there is an association with delayed motor development, delayed meeting and motor milestones, and also um, cognitive challenges, increase in ear infections, as I said, changes in peripheral visual field. So plagiocephaly is not just an aesthetic issue, and that's a big issue from the back to sleep campaign. And I'm not saying children shouldn't sleep on their back. Of course, it's the advice and I recommend it as well. But what we need to do is deal with the children that have the underlying asymmetries that cause the plagiocephaly. And also really, you know, if we just had a public health campaign around back to sleep and tummy to play, which they tried to do, but it didn't go well. But those tummy time episodes and really help parents understand that babies lifting their head helps their development and it helps their motor development and their cognitive development. I don't find parents that have trouble doing that once they understand why. You know, we're all better at doing something if we know what's the, you know, what's it for and what's the value in it and how does it tie in with things that matter to us. So, but yeah, I think mm. there is a, a big change in development because of all the reasons, nutrition, um, the way we birth our children, the emotional stress, the lack of co-regulatory capacities and, you know, all of those, you know, all of those things that happen. And, you know, if we think, Damien, evidence-based practice, you know, people think about that as, we, you know, research evidence. Yes, it is. That's yeah, one component. Love to talk about this. Yeah. But there's clinical experience is critically important and there's patient preferences and values and that matters in evidence-based practice. It's a triad best available research evidence, clinical experience, patient preferences and values. And I think person-centred care is critically important. And when you're yes. ready, I'd love to just talk about the um, government survey that was done, if that's okay. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that, Jen. I think that's really important. Um, you know, there was an issue a couple of years ago that um, made it on, it was on YouTube, then it made it to television um, and then subsequently people became nervous um, of chiropractic. Well, it was, there was a perception that people became nervous of chiropractic yeah. children. Mm. Um, mm. And so this perception um, that chiropractic may be unsafe for children um, kind of 
gained a little bit of traction, but you were at the coalface of that. You were at the forefront and you worked with government in helping them understand um, how chiropractic can be used in an integrative fashion, integrative model of healthcare using evidence-based practice. Um, and so I'd love you to just share a little bit of light um, on what, what you discovered because I think it's important for the practitioners listening to this right now to understand mm that what the media say may not actually be the truth. <laughs> may not. Yeah, look, may there not. was a really big push um, for the then Health Minister in Victoria, uh, Jenny McCarkos. Uh, there was a really big push for some ultra-conservative small lobby groups that pushed, you know, to sort of sell that story that chiropractic was unsafe. And... Uh, None of the research evidence supports that, not only in research evidence, in insurance claims, in um, reports to APRA. There's no evidence to support that idea of lack of safety. So uh, leave that part off the table. And I think then the story was, well, there's no, you know, there's been no issues uh, and there's no, um, you know, problem as far as safety goes. But oh, well, it could be unsafe in certain circumstances and there isn't enough robust evidence at a highest level to support chiropractic care. And that's true. The, the, the evidence base is developing, you know, and because there could be a risk, even though there hasn't been, um, well, therefore it shouldn't be done. But what's interesting is, you know, Venus published a paper in 2020 looking at evidence-based practice across healthcare. And one of the highest evidence-based practice is, um, you know, caring cardiology. And the highest grade one level of evidence for that is only around 60%. And for things like, you know, dementia care and all sorts of other care, there's really, there's clinical, you know, evidence and there's clinical practice guidelines but in, and there's lower level evidence. But in terms of that grade one evidence, it's not there in a lot of areas, not only in, you know, for the work that um, chiropractors and osteopaths do. Um, and these are very hard things. You yeah. know, it's hard to yeah. do a randomised controlled trial and do sham therapy and exclude yeah. parents from it when it comes to children and there's all the ethical issues of that. So what I want to come back to with regard to that is the government decided it was, it was run by Safer Care Victoria. Um, they decided to do a survey of the public. It was open for a month. It was hosted through Engage.vic, a government website, and it was all anonymous and de-identified. It was on the government site and parents could put in or children, if they were older, could put in their experience of chiropractic care. So there was a stream for those who had accessed chiropractic care for children under 12 in the last 10 years. And there's a stream for those that had an opinion about chiropractic care, but hadn't accessed it for a child under 12 yeah. in the last 10 years. And in the parent part of that, there was 22 and something thousand responses. And the other part had four and a half thousand. So 26 and a half thousand responses in a month is a wow. huge, huge number of responses. And it um, would have almost broken the internet. Well, they had to get external <laughs> companies in to analyse the data, I'll tell you that part. But mm. um, 26,500 responses. Uh, it's the largest healthcare survey done as a one-off survey. The NHS in the UK have slightly larger numbers, but this has been running 10 years. So it is the largest you know, health um, provision survey that there is. And what I'll tell you from that is, 
I I got access to the data and I wrote it up for my thesis. My PhD, as I said, was early childhood development. It was through coursework and thesis. And my Mm -hmm. thesis, um, I got the data. So a couple of things we know, 75% of children that come to chiropractors are under um, care of another health practitioner and some up to seven other health practitioners for that same issue. Wow. 48% of kids come to chiropractors, this is children under 12, 48% come for musculoskeletal issues and 40% come for de- developmental concerns, whether yeah. that's, you know, postural concerns, walking, crawling, you know, speech and language. You know, we don't treat conditions as chiropractors, as you know, Damien, but yes. we do work with the posture and the neurological integration to help improve body to brain, back to body, um, you know, nerve pathways and control. And so a couple of the other things that came out, 9916 percent of parents were satisfied or very satisfied and the large majority of those were very satisfied. So 99.16% with their involvement in decisions about care. 98.35% of parents said that their child improved after the care was provided. And when I summed across the fields of did you feel involved in the decision-making? Was there appropriate consent to care given? Did your child improve? And I summed across all of those um, questions. Um, 99.6% of parents said their child benefited from chiropractic care. Their outstanding results, they're way higher than even I would have thought they would have been. It was well represented right across Australia, each state, you know, that was was well represented. Um, So I, I just think they're outstanding results. And I think it is important parents, you know, want access to healthcare other than what they might consider as standard medical care. And it's not only our care, it's all sorts of care, as we know. Um, and I think as long as there's robust consent to care, that it's there's not, you know, harm or risk involved, then I think parents should have the right to access the care. And their experience is it makes a difference. Yeah. Oh, that's profound. Those numbers are mind-blowing, Jen. And They're mind-blowing. It, yeah, it brings me back to the whole um, the chat about shared care. I think this is really so important. important. And a great thing for everybody listening to this podcast is to understand um, that all practitioners can be involved in the care of a patient and in particular a pediatric patient. Those numbers there talking about up to seven other practitioners involved in the care of oh. a patient. You spoke earlier about needing needing a village to help raise a child and in particular it becomes more important to have extra minds working with uh, children that have experienced a deficiency um, of their neurological development it's going to require more things so you will need a speech you might need an ot you probably you're going to need a chiro you'll need an integrative nutritionist you need an integrative gp there's a whole lot of things that you're going to need to help this child um, catch up and to get back on track so to hear that data should give a lot of people some confidence that um, chiropractic can be part of, as well as other therapies, osteopathy, physiotherapy. These are all movement-based um, practices. We can all be involved in the care of the pediatric patient. I think that's really, really important. 
That's so good, Jen. Critically important. Yeah, critically important. You know, Dave, my area isn't nutrition. I've got a very basic understanding and I'm interested in it, but I'm not the skill, you know, I'm not the person with the skill set. I have fabulous people that I work with and refer to and, yeah. you know, who refer to me as well. And I think that's it. it. It does take a multi-pronged approach. And if we sit there thinking we've got answers or the answers, I think we're doing a disservice to our kids. We do need to work together, but we need to understand what each other does as well so we know how to interrefer and how to, you know, to look after people. I just want to see more healthy, vibrant communities. And I think, you know, our profession plays a role in that as many others do. And, uh, you know, it's for the good of the outcome for the kids and the families. Yeah. Oh, good on you, Jen. Jen, it's been absolutely incredible to have you on the podcast with me today. And um, and I'm sure that the thousands of subscribers to FX Medicine will absolutely love this discussion and get a real sense of the importance of shared care for the paediatric patient. And I'm so grateful that you've given me freely your time today to help people understand more about paediatric neurodevelopment. Jen, um, where can people find more about you and your work? I practice in East Hawthorne. We have a really busy and vibrant practice there. And uh, as you know, I teach to chiropractors and some uh, continuing professional development work. And I teach a two-year postgraduate, you know, program um, to chiropractors as well. Uh, but also I speak for, you know, the dentists and the midwives and the lactation consultants. They speak at my, you know, seminars. I speak at theirs. I'm in close contact with a lot of integrated GPs and naturopaths. But, um, you know, that's, that's my work I'm um, working on um, writing a book at the moment because I think it is you know and that's really actually more for families but what, what are the sort of building blocks of healthy development and how do we um, you know turn this uh, turn the health of our communities around into a more positive direction Oh, that's the greatest. I'll be stocking that book in my practice. There's no doubt about it. So if you want to find out more about Jen, go to www.dynamicneuro.com or inspiralresources.com. So you can go there and, and check her out. Thanks, Dan. But thanks, everybody, for listening today. And don't forget that you can find all of the show notes, transcripts, and other resources on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.